0: we're going to talk about how Jesus breaks the cycle of shame. What's the source of shame? How is he the solution to it? And also, what does it look like to share your shame with others? And so, that being said, let's read this briefer chunk of what we looked at all of last week. It's on the page in front of you. This is John 4, and this is picking up right after Jesus has started to meddle in this woman's life. And he's asking her about very sensitive places about her past, he had just asked her, where is your husband? And she said, I have no husband. And he said, you're right, you've had five. This is what comes right after that. Sir, the woman said to Jesus, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus said, oh, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and actually has now come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Jesus isn't talking about some distant event. He's talking about what's happening The next few seconds of this encounter. The woman said, I know that Messiah called the Christ, I know he's coming, and when he comes he'll explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I am him. Just then his disciples came back. They were in the town getting food. They were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but nobody dared ask, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town, Sychar is where she was from. She went back to her town, and she said to the people, come, come here, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be Messiah? So the townspeople came out of the town, and they made their way toward Jesus. A few verses later, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of her testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus. They urged him, stay with us another two days, and so Jesus did. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you told us, but now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Join me in praying for just a second. Living Jesus, friend of sinners, uh, lover of our souls, My prayer is that you, who are alive right now, and are still living water tonight, would do and produce what the last few sentences of what I just read you did 2,000 years ago. Would there be people here tonight who were kind of taking friends or parents or other people's word for you being a savior of sinners, but tonight they leave here saying, I don't have to take their word for it. I know So sit at a well with us. Draw us out. Talk to us. Give us ears to hear you and a heart to believe. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I said last week that shame is kind of like an onion, right? It's got a lot of layers to it. It's bitter, and it can bring tears to your eyes. Sometimes it doesn't bring tears to your eyes, right? Because uh, maybe shame is such a familiar part of your past and your present, that you have some other emotional response to it. Uh, Maybe it's kind of turned into a really hard exterior shell. It's put you on offense to keep people away from the sensitive stuff, or to not let someone trespass over a really raw area. Maybe shame manifests now just kind of in a short temper or anger. Uh, Maybe you haven't cried about shame in years, or maybe it really is a, a really soft, tender spot for you. Sometimes our eyes aren't what cries, but it's our souls do. And we experience that a lot of different ways. I wanna help you, if you have trouble thinking, shame is something I struggle with, I wanna spend a few minutes just asking this first question we're talking about. What's the source of shame? Because I think as we talk about it, every guy and every girl in this room, myself included, uh, begins to realize, shame is kind of the clothes I wear. It's inside of me, it's on me, it's around me. It's a very familiar and terrible friend. And then we'll look at what we do with that. What are exactly the, the kinds of shame that, uh, that this woman that I just read about bore on her back, and perhaps you and I do too? What's the source of those things? Let me throw a handful at you, okay? Maybe four or five. Um, one source of shame that we experience is when there's this widening gap between the, your public persona and your private secrets, right? For example, um, you you might be the church girl who grew up in this kind of stuff your whole life. You're a pretty devoted person. Your friends would call you godly. You think of yourself that way and you're not trying to live a double life, but somehow, somewhere along the way, porn kind of became that little thing that you go to when you're stressed or when you're bored or when you're lonely or when you wonder what your future's gonna hold and you have no idea how it became your addiction, but you can't let anybody know about it, or you cut, or there's an eating disorder and you can't tell anybody because your friends know you as this very different thing. You're known by your public persona and you're not that girl. You can't tell them you're that girl. What would they think? They'd be shocked at the gap between who they think you are and who you actually are. And again, you're not maliciously trying to live a double life, maybe, but you got stuck. You got trapped, and you don't know what to do. And you've been in hiding for years because you think girls aren't supposed to struggle with this. That's a guy thing. And you just, you're, you're, you're bathed in shame about it. So when there's a gap between public persona and private secret, shame takes root. It masters us. It, cap- it, it, it holds us captive. Shame also comes when those private secrets become public i mean if 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 we're scared of when the, there's a gap between public persona and private secret what happens when the secrets come out and again these are not hypotheticals friends these are the stories of our lives they're my stories they're yours they're past friends you might be the leader in ruf for your church and you're a guy who never thought i'm going to be the guy who struggles with same-sex attraction you never envisioned you're going to be the guy who downloads grinder and meets up with other guys but you have had days on that campus where you're petrified to be seen by the person that you were with because your secret risks coming into the light and people knowing about it. And you live under the captivity of shame every day and you can't talk about it. Shame comes from being different than the people around you, right? I mean, down to the little nitty-gritty things like you're the heavier person in your friend group, or you've judged yourself the less attractive person in your friend group, or the one who doesn't get asked out in your friend group, or you grew up a little bit on the poorer end of the spectrum, and you've always had the Walmart version of the name brand stuff, and somebody called you on it one time and they said, what are those? Where's the logo? And and you played it off, you laughed it off, but you carry the shame of poverty still in your heart to this day because of where you came from or how you grew up. There's shame if you came here alone tonight and you're sitting alone and you think everybody else in this room came with somebody, they all have someone to sit with, but I don't. And so you do what all of us do, you do what I do, and you're on your phone, like pretending to be texting the friends who are gonna come and meet you, down to the little stuff. Shame gets in and shame masters us There's ethnic shame. We talked about it a little bit last week. It's in this passage, but ethnic shame, where it's not just little differences between you and maybe the people you've been around, but if you've been kind of a minority in a majority culture space, uh, you just, you feel like you're on eggshells all the time. You never quite feel like you really belong like they belong. You never feel like you're at home like they feel they're at home. And you're hyper aware of an accent or of, of, of a physical feature or, or just life experience. And there's shame, It shouldn't be shame there, but there's shame there. And there's hiding and there's who do I talk to about this, there's shame from being victimized. Somebody did something unthinkable to you. And you have lived since that day, as if it happened yesterday, and they stole innocence from you. They stole cleanness from you, and though you didn't do anything, you felt dirty and disposable since then, every day. There's shame for being the victimizer and carrying that secret around. Shame can be triggered by things external, by things that you and I have done, kind of arising out of guilt. Shame can come from stuff that you and I didn't do that we should have, Your friend lost her dad last year, and you didn't know what to say, so you didn't call, but it's been a year, and you're like, I can't even, I I have to bolt out the side door if she's here, because I feel so ashamed that I didn't know what to do, or I didn't do anything. Shame can come from external sources, gossiping, bullying. Shame can come from inside of you. Intrusive thoughts you didn't ask for, they didn't ask your permission, but they're just tattooing these outrageous images in your mind or these thoughts, these dark thoughts in your mind. It can come from your self-talk, your inner dialogue. Do you know what Stockholm Syndrome is? If you've taken Psych 101, you've probably heard about it. It's a common thing they talk about there. It's it's a simple idea. It's basically the idea that people who've been long-term in captivity, like hostages or in some long-term kidnapping situation, they've noticed that a lot of them develop some kind of emotional connection. A psychological alliance develops. A collaboration develops between captive and captor. Where you start seeing yourself, we're on the same team, we're on the same mission. And this is where shame gets even worse. Is it not terrible so far? This is where it takes an extra insidious turn, because we begin to collaborate with our own shame and we defer to its commands, we listen to its counsel, we adopt its its view of us, we think its thoughts, we parrot its condemnation. There's a guy named John Cox. He's a somewhat well-known um, psychologist or counselor, and uh, he was telling the story one time of a counselee who, who just was kind of paralyzed with shame, and he the guy was being pretty vague with him. He's like, I beat myself up. Like, I don't have a good self-image. And, and Dr. Cox was like, but yeah, I, put me in your brain. Tell me the dialogue. Read the script to me of what you say to yourself. And the guy goes, really? And he said, yeah. So the guy just starts going for two or three minutes, and it's expletive filled, and it's, it's heated, and John Cox said he wasn't trying to do some counselor trick of mirroring, he he said his jaw literally dropped and he said, he said, if I ever heard someone say those things to you, I would call the police. He said, I am so sorry, that's how you see yourself. That's how you talk to yourself. Do you see the Stockholm syndrome thing? Whatever your shame is, We are collaborators with it. We're in league with it, in cahoots with it. It's our shame in uh, in us against us and against other people too. Do you see some of these things in the real life account of this Samaritan woman and Jesus? Where do we see it in her life? We know uh, that she experiences ethnic and gender shame because she brings it up twice. It's not in the paper, but it's in the John 4, if you have your Bible or you remember from last week, Jesus starts talking to her, and she's like, I think probably with some attitude, uh, so what is this? You know, men don't have time to talk to women ever because we're nothing, but now you want to talk to me? A man talk to a woman. Oh, and also, you know, I can tell by your clothing and your, your features, you're Jewish, and I'm Samaritan. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. What are you doing? She's lived her whole life under that just being diminished and made small, 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 and maybe there's attitude, maybe there's softer emotions there, but she's kind of pushing back at Jesus, so we see that shame in her. We know there's sexual shame. We know she wishes she could redo her past. We know she wishes she could have redone her past at least five times because she's been married five times. We don't know what happened. Was she rejected? Did a husband come back one day and say, I'm done. Like, I don't love you. And she's just left like a woman in the first century with, with no financial security, no insurance, no retirement. And she's like, so where? who do I go to now? Was there death? Was there divorce? Was there affairs? We don't know. Probably all of it. Five times you kind of hit statistical odds. All of it happened. We know she's drenched in shame, though, because She's listening to its orders and commands. She will not go anywhere where she accidentally bumps into women from her town because she knows what they think. She knows what they say. She knows what is going on their mind. She is a woman who's been mastered by shame. She's a case study of a captive to shame. So if these are the sources of it, and I imagine you can relate to at least a few of these, if not all of them. I mean, this woman's the confluence of all of the stuff we've been talking about, but What's the solution to it if this is how bad it is? If it's as I've I've said it is, what's the solution to something that has kind of claws that go this deep into us? What gets you out of this? Can we talk about a few things we know it can't be? It can't just just be a psychological solution. Therapy can't get you out of this alone. Medicine can't get you out of this alone. Some psychological technique, can't get you out of this alone. Better self-love or self-talk techniques can't get you out of this because they can't deal with the legitimate sources of shame. Self-talk can't undo what happened to you in third grade. Self-talk can't change what you really know to be true about yourself. So it has to be more than a psychological solution. Can it be, could it be kind of a secular cultural solution? Because I think the the way a modern-day therapist might sit down with a woman at the well in her condition, he might say, he might listen to her same story and he says something like, well, just relabel your identity. You're polyamorous. You have a high capacity for relationship and for love. So let's just put a new term on it, relabel it, redefine it, re-identify it, and say, now it's good. It's healthy. The problem here is that you're not embracing who you really are she would leave that encounter just as much a slave to shame as she was before, because you can rebrand it, you can rename it, you can re-identify it, you can get some other taxonomy, and it does nothing to eliminate just kind of this volcanic source of it. It just keeps spewing stuff out. Could it be a religious solution? Maybe that would work. Kind of bury it, forget about it, and then try to pile up a lot of good living, a lot of good moral stuff. A lot of theological knowledge to kind of just, you know, build it into the wall so it's bricked over. And and you and anybody else is ever going to see it again. I don't say this because these are the only people who have gotten into this stuff, but it's it's a shared experience you and I are familiar with. Uh, That's been tried. And over the past decade, we've seen monthly headlines from the Catholic child sex abuse scandal. Both victim and victimizer tried to shove things underground, subterranean, suppress it, Cover it up with better attempts to not be as bad next time or to try to forget about it. Does it go away? It doesn't. It's the albatross around your soul and it stunts any progress, any growth. So it can't just be a psychological solution, a cultural solution, a secular solution, a religious solution. What then if shame is a captor, a superior power to you and me, shrewder, craftier, stronger? What can liberate you from shame? What can clean you from it? And what precisely could it be? There is a, a, a lady, you, you probably have never heard of her, because she died in 1988, but at the time, the last chunk of her life, she was known as one of the, uh, m- you know, most well-read kind of secular humanist novelist. She's not a Christian. She wasn't a friend of Christians. She didn't like anything about Christianity, but towards the end of her life, she made this famous statement. Her name is Margarita Lasky, and she said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness, because I have nobody to forgive me. You think about that. Uh, when When at a mind level or a heart level we have pushed God away, rejected God, You're a tiny little person in a really big, bad world. And you know your need of forgiveness, you know your need of cleansing, but there's nobody who can do it. There's nobody, kind of no person with a capital P, big enough, strong enough, caring enough, interested enough to come to you and to set you free from that. And that was Margarita's, sorry, well that was a, (laughs) I bet that was her nickname, Marganita's. (laughs) that was Marganita's dilemma. I have nobody to forgive me. I have nobody who can clean me. And you could almost continue her quote, I've been trying to clean myself my whole life, but there's nobody who can clean me. My question to you is, what if there is somebody who can clean you, who can cancel shame, who can can conquer it so that you, even tonight, can walk away sharing in the victory over it? Instead of shame standing over your dead body, the victor, you stand over its dead body, the victor, forever. I want you to look at something before we answer the question, because some of you are like, I know where he's going. I went to a Christian school. or I've been a Christian my whole life. He's about to say Jesus. Well, we probably are, but we need to do a little more digging before we get to him. Look at this with me. Look at this passage, and almost imagine in your mind's eye if we could personify shame, if we could you know, this is a real historical account, but what if we could kind of bring a character in and kind of write shame on their shirt and personify them? Who's laughing now as this woman sits at a well with the Christ, with God in the flesh, she meets her maker and he's tender. She meets her maker and he doesn't weaponize the truth against her, but he uses the truth to, to get her leg out of the trap. And she, after that encounter, walks away free, skipping almost as it were back to her town, the source of the ridicule. Who's laughing now? You imagine shame in that moment, and shame is issuing orders left and right. Don't you dare go to that well in the morning. You know who's at the well. They're going to see you. You know what they think about you. You're trash. You're trash. And they know it. You go at noon when you're not going to run anybody. She's like, OK, I'll go at noon. She's at here at noon. She sees a man there. She didn't expect to see him there. He starts asking her questions, and shame starts up with the commands again. Don't you dare answer his question. Where's your husband? He's getting close to me. You tell him to stay away. You deflect. You talk about where we're going to worship on this mountain or that. You talk about the weather. Do it. She does it. She says, so I can see you're a prophet. Should we worship on this mountain or that mountain? It's issuing her orders, and somehow within an hour, she's walking away from it free. It, it's still shouting, as it were, and it's just going over her head. It doesn't connect with her anymore. It doesn't land in her heart. And shame is saying, what are you doing going back to Sikhar? You're going back to Samaria. Don't you know the whole town knows what you did, and you're wanting to go there and tell them, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did? Every man in town knows what you've done. You're the laughingstock of the town. What are you doing going back and just putting weapons in their hands to condemn you again? That's what Shane would be saying in this moment as this woman liberated, freed for the first time ever, loved for the first time ever, seen and known, and set free for the first time ever. She walks right back into that town. A lady who wouldn't even go get water because she might bump into other people now goes to the town square and of all the stuff she wants to talk about, it's the most sensitive, raw, ugly place of her life. Come meet a man, a man. (laughs) Men were the source of all of her problems. Come meet a man who handled me with respect, who listened to my answers who drew me out, not to set a trap like a Pharisee or a rabbi would to just say, and that's what I'm talking about, but who loved me. Come meet a man who lifted my burden instead of adding to it. Come meet a man who let me breathe for the first time ever. I'm not suffocating anymore you know she would have had a smile on her face, and the people are like, what happened? It, bl- it should blow your mind that anybody believed her. It should blow your mind that there were men and women in the town who believed her and actually followed her back to Jesus. That should, you should not expect that. A woman with this reputation should be like, oh, crazy lady's back, whatever, someone call the police, get her escorted off. They tune in, and of course, her testimony is not like the totality of it has not come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. That's the banner over it. But she's going on and on about, I think I just met God, and he's so different than I ever imagined he'd be. The encounter was never what I expected it to be to meet God. These people believe her. The body language, maybe the smile on her face, maybe, you know, you can look at people and tell if they're free or not. You know what I mean? you ever seen a friend just kind of loaded down with guilt or something, they just look all bound up? Maybe for the first time they saw this woman released. She's herself again. Whatever it was, they followed her. She found a true solution to her shame, and it was God. Would you ever believe it? (laughs) Would you ever imagine he's the solution to your shame? You know, I said earlier, you might be expecting that, and it's her, Jesus is the solution to my shame, The problem with us is we actually don't believe that. You think he's the last solution to your shame. You think he's the last person you'd ever want to go deep with and put all the cards on the table and let him see and talk about everything you've ever done. That's the twist of all the people you think would have a tender, truthful, healing, cleansing response, liberating response. God himself we got to go a little bit deeper, though, than just that Jesus is the solution. We need to look at how is he the solution, why is he the solution, and not all the other stuff that we threw under the bus earlier. Here's why and how Jesus is the solution to her shame and your shame. He enters into our shame unashamedly. Hear that. How can he be the solution to your shame? He enters into your shame unashamedly. Jesus is not ashamed to be with this woman. And I was, I was thinking about it. I'm like, he's got to be the only human being in Israel or Samaria who's not ashamed to be seen with this lady. Every other rabbi wouldn't have said a word to her. There's not a man who would have talked to her. There's not a woman in the town who would have talked to her. They had already ostracized her. And Jesus just goes right in. And he says, can you give me a drink? He asked her a question. He's not ashamed to be seen with her. Even Jesus' disciples are ashamed to be seen with her. Did you pick it up when they they came back and they said, why are you talking to a woman? But they knew Jesus enough to say, we should probably keep our mouths shut because there's probably a reason. Jesus is not ashamed to go there with her. You know what I mean by that? Have Have you ever had a friend where you're like, there's something we need to talk about, and it just feels icky to go there and ask him, hey, did you do this? is this what's going on? And you're like, oh, nothing. I don't want to go there. It's dark. It's going to splatter on me. Or have you ever had a friend come to you and say, hey, I need to talk to you. I've got, a, I've got something on my chest. I need to get off. And you're like, where's the body hidden? Oh gosh, I don't want to hear it. Right? It's dark. We feel the shame of other people. We don't want to get it on us. Look at this. God approaches this woman in her shame, and he goes there, and there's no hesitation. He's not afraid of getting her stuff splattered on him. Why is he not ashamed to get her stuff splattered on him? Do you remember why Jesus is even talking to this lady? If you were here last week, you, were be- you remember the very beginning of this passage, Jesus chose to walk through Samaria. He didn't have to it was out of his way. Like we said last week, even now today, there's like places sometimes you don't feel comfortable, you don't go, you drive around it. Every rabbi, every Jew went around Samaria, not through it. Here is Jesus, God in the flesh, going right through Samaria. He's entering the shame of Samaria. He's entering the shame of talking to a woman in this historical context, which would have brought shame. He's entering into the shame of going there with her. Why? Because he said he's seeking her. Jesus reroutes his way to intersect your way. Jesus always takes detours so that he'll intercept you. (laughs) It's exactly why he was here. It's not coincidental that he's at Jacob's well talking to this woman. Charles Spurgeon, old British pastor, said the eyes of mercy are quicker. You could say the eyes of Jesus are quicker than the eyes of our repentance even the eyes of our faith are dim compared with the eye of God's love. He sees a sinner long before a sinner sees him. Jesus saw this woman, and he had her number. He's been pursuing her for days, and she didn't even know it, probably years, months, and this is what it looks like. How else does Jesus, a solution to your shame, how is he a solution? He touches your shame. If you know anything about the Gospels and Jesus's life, he is a magnet for shameful people. He touches all the people that he's not supposed to touch. There's an unclean woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She's been to every doctor. None of them know what to do. She is ceremonially unclean. Can't get in anywhere near the temple because of that. And she comes and Jesus lets her touch him, and she's healed. Jesus sees lepers. You and I have probably never seen a leper. There's still lepers in the world today, and it's hideous, and it's contagious. It's not just a skin thing. It gets into your bone. It gets into your tendons. It deforms you in the most grotesque way. They were ceremonially unclean. They They were the untouchables, segregated off in their own area. You know what? Whenever Jesus came across a leper, guess what God did? He touched them. He touched them. When a little girl dies, she's unclean. And he says, "Talitha Akum, little girl, rise up. And he helps her get up. God is a God who touches the places of your shame. He is not afraid to. It's what he has come to do to free you from your shame. Do you think he's afraid to talk about it? Do you think he's afraid to come near it? Do you think he's afraid to touch it? This says he's not. Ultimately, he himself knows firsthand what shame feels like. This is this will blow your socks off. Jesus himself knows how to handle your shame because Jesus himself has felt shame. He felt ethnic shame. There's a saying, it's even recorded in the Bible. Does anything good come out of Nazareth? This is hometown. It begs the question, of course not. Hillbilly town, a bunch of uneducated peasants. Jesus was known his whole life as the bastard son of Mary. Mary has a wild fling with some random guy and Jesus is the result of it. That's what he was known as. Aren't you Mary's son, they would always ask him. Jesus has socioeconomic shame. He's from a carpenter family, a little brick mason family. He'd never known money or wealth scraping by God knows your shame because he's lived with shame too And friends if you don't hear anything else tonight I want you to hear this and zero in and pay attention how does how is Jesus the solution to your shame all the stuff I've said but most importantly Jesus chose to bear your shame There was a couple a long time ago that I did premarital counseling with so a lot of people when they get married they either have to to get a discount on their license, or uh, they want to just sit down and talk with a pastor or a counselor, kind of about marriage. What's it like? What are the pitfalls? What do we need to be aware of? So I was working through things um, with this couple, and um, over the course of the, of the weeks, it, uh, the girl, I guess the girl fiancé, I don't know what to call her, uh, different pieces of her past kept coming out. Shame. Shame sexual assault that had happened to her, her own kind of sexual escapades that she'd done many times since then, uh, and the ways that all this past junk and shame had come to bear on the present relationship, all the ways it just messed everything up and gunked it up. And she said, the reason this became a conversation in the, in the session that we were having is she said, um, I don't wanna suck him into this black hole because I've been trying to get out of it my whole life, and I see him coming into it now too, and I don't know what to do, I'm scared. At this point, the guy says this, and I wrote it down because I couldn't believe it. He said, "This this is my story now too, and I'm not running away. Nobody's making me do this. I'm here because I wanna be here. He chose her shame. She chose his shame too in a lot of ways she would find out later. What do I mean that Jesus chose your shame? I mean that, but I mean something even more than that, even more significant than that. Jesus is fully aware of the life that he's marching into. His hour, when because he was bearing the shame of all the people he died for, where he would be spat upon, he would actually receive all the ridicule you're terrified of getting for your stuff. He got it. Exposed, naked, spat upon, ridiculed, dismissed, People wouldn't even look at him. He was so grotesque, suffering, heaving on a cross, condemned by God and condemned by man. He chose to bear your shame. Jesus knows shame is like a zero-sum game. Something has to be done with the cause, the source of it. You can't just say, be gone. You can't kind of therapy your way out of it. He knows there's something real here that's causing it. That has to be dealt with. Jesus knows for this woman to get up and walk away free and clean, shame canceled. I have to walk away dirty, condemned, and loaded down with her shame. And it's the same interaction with you and with me. On the cross, he bears publicly the shame that you and I oftentimes unnecessarily carry around thinking we must pay for it. So what's the effect of all of this? The effect of Jesus being the solution to our shame is that he conquers your shame. If you're engaged in these kind of conversations with him, if you're willing to sit and let him talk to you and ask you these questions, if you're willing to entertain the possibility, could this be God? And I've had it wrong all along that he responds to me this way. You get up from that encounter and he has cleaned you permanently from the inside out. Some of us in this room, what you need to do with tonight's message is sit with Jesus in a place like this. Turn off your phone, put away the Roku remote or whatever it is, and sit for 30 minutes. Sit for an hour with Jesus as he asks you the questions you're terrified of him asking you, not to condemn you, but to liberate you. For some of the rest of us, what you do with this passage is what this woman did. When her shame was liberated, when it was canceled, when she walked away cleansed, she shared her shame. This should blow your socks off too, and this is the last thing we're talking about. It is crazy. When Jesus cancels her shame, he's not done with her. When he redeems her, he's just getting started. Do you know what the word redeem means? It means to buy back. If you were a little kid and you go to Chuck E. Cheese and you're like, here's a bunch of tokens. If you redeemed your tokens, you're saying, here's something worthless. I want their value back. I want to redeem them. Turn them in and get back what's rightfully mine, the teddy bear or whatever. When Jesus redeems your life, Jesus redeems your story, which means your story is not your own anymore. It's his. Which means your shame is now public property. He is disarmed it, defanged it. It's like an old shell casing, like a brass shell casing. The gunpowder is gone, the bullet has exploded and been shot out. All that's left is a remnant of what used to be there. It's as safe as can be now. There's no power in it anymore, but it's a great prop to tell a story of one you met who took the bullet that you could walk around and talk about this innocuous little thing these places of shame, and that's exactly what she does. She goes and she tells him her story, and it's amazing. And she knows her story belongs to Jesus. No, Jesus didn't tell her, go share your story. Jesus didn't put her through some class and say, here's how you do it. She she went, and she goes to the town, and she says, look. She knows she's just kind of this ordinary canvas, this unremarkable canvas, pieces of wood, pieces of cloth, but a a master painter has painted on me. Van Gogh has painted on me. Rembrandt has painted on me. And she says, look what he painted. She knows it's not about her. That's why she's free to talk about her shame. Look what he did to me. Look what he painted over me. Look how he covered me. So the last question I ask of you is this. It's a dilemma because you say, well, I have met with Jesus at a well like this. I've talked to him. He's freed me from a place like this but I don't talk about them. I've never, I've never felt freedom to kind of go and say, hey, this is my struggle. This is how God has met me in this and walked with me out of it. This is how he's freeing me. And you, your roommates don't know about that. Your classmates don't know about that. They never talk about it. And you say, what's going on? I think there's two explanations possibly. One is, have you ever met Jesus and sat at a well with him, as it were, and been liberated by him? Is shame still your captor? issuing orders to you that you obey. If it is, sit with him. The other reason could be you don't know your friends are thirsty. This woman knows everybody in that city is thirsty, is parched, is shamed, is a captive, right? She knows it because she can see it on her face because that's her whole life. So she knows, and she goes back to them, and she says, I found living water, and I know you're on the edge of your life dying of thirst and I'm the bridge that goes between the two. So you've either got to sit with Jesus and say, do I really know you? Am I really free? Or you've got to say, do I really know my friends? Do I really know if they're free or not? Let's pray. Jesus, living water, satisfy our thirst. Jesus, conqueror of shame, liberate us. We pray in your name.